So we are continuing our sermon series on the book of Revelation called the Seven Letters, um, the Seven Churches of Revelation. And today we are talking through, um, we, we've been talking through the last several weeks of this study of, of, of the history and the context of these seven different churches in Asia Minor that were addressed by Jesus through the Apostle John, who when he was um, exiled on the island of Patmos, he received a vision, he received a letter from the Lord, and Jesus said, this is what I want you to say to the churches. So write these things down, and he writes these letters, and he has them delivered to each of these churches all throughout Asia Minor. And each church, understand this, if you're just kind of catching up this morning, each church was unique in its circumstance, each church was unique in its struggle. They were very real churches. These were not metaphorical cities or churches. Jesus was addressing very specific situations and scenarios. And so they're all unique to these churches. Um, and each letter is unique in its correction of the church and its commendation of the church. And what I love about scripture is that because it's alive, because it's active, because it's powerful, it's relevant to us today. Yes, Jesus was writing these letters to churches 2,000 years ago, but it's still relevant to us today because Jesus says, I don't know if you've noticed this pattern or not, but at the end of each passage of scripture that we've read for the last four weeks, Jesus has said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's like Jesus is saying to us today here at Crossroads, he's saying this letter is relevant to the people that I'm writing it to here and now, but it's also relevant to you at Crossroads 2,000 years later. His word is still relevant to us today. So I want to pray that we might this morning tune our ears to listen to God, that we might tune our ears to hear what he has a word for us, and that it might be a welcome word to us, and it might be a sweet sound of truth. Because I think what we need is the sweet sound of truth. As I think about, as I think about sounds in our life, I want to kind of go the opposite direction and ask you a question this morning. If, if I were to ask you, what is the worst sound you have ever heard? Or what is your least favorite sound? What would it be? Think about that for just a moment. For some of you, it might be, I'm going to make you cringe. It might be fingernails on a chalkboard. For others of you, it might be a dentist drill. You know that, is there anything worse than a dentist drill? For others of you, you know, it might be uh, microphone feedback. You ever go to a service or a presentation and all of a sudden there's that screeching sound that just is piercing through the, through the speakers? That's an awful sound to hear. For some of you, it might be your own voice being played back through a sound system. For others of you, it might be my voice preaching to you right now. I don't really know. Um, for others of you, it might be the sound of your wife as she snores the night away. And it's just super awful and it keeps you awake at night. For some of you ladies, maybe it's the sound of your husband's bodily functions as he lets them go. Um, it could be the sound of a smoke alarm that begins chirping because the batteries are dying. That little chirp, like every 90 seconds, oh my goodness, it just makes me want to pull my hair out. And this might be one of the worst ones. Any of you ever had a pencil that the eraser has been worn all the way down to where it's flat up against the metal at the end of the pencil? And you try to run that eraser and all it does is screech and squeak? 
Like that gives me goosebumps and chills just thinking about it. So those are all like awful sounds. And we all have something that just kind of makes us cringe. Well, I got to tell you this morning that as bad as all of those are, one of the, my least favorite sounds in all of creation is this. So take a listen to this. <laughs> Isn't that just the worst sound ever? Like the, alarm, the sound of the alarm clock on a, on a cold Sunday morning, on a cold fall Sunday morning, when all you want to do is sleep in because the covers are warm and you feel nice and cozy, but you know that you've got to get up and you've got to get your little tushy to church because this is what you do on Sundays. There's nothing more uninviting than the sound of an alarm clock. Well, I guess there is something that's more uninviting Because what's even worse than your own alarm clock going off is when your spouse's alarm clock goes off. Am I right? And the only thing worse than your spouse's alarm clock going off and waking you up is when your spouse sets their alarm an hour early and they just keep hitting snooze. Are there any snoozers in the room this morning? How many of you are snooze people? Okay, not as many as maybe I had thought. I don't know what it is with snooze people. I just don't get it. I don't understand why you would set your... My wife does this. I saw like three hands that went up and my wife was one of them. And she's kind of proud of it. But she sets her alarm clock like 40 minutes early every day. And she will just snooze like every five to seven minutes. And I think to myself, why wouldn't you just get that sweet like uninterrupted sleep all the way up to the moment that you actually have to get up. But she likes to be prepared. She likes to be warned. And I don't know about you, I've tried to reason with her. I've tried to have these conversations and to teach her that there is a better way. But you can't, you can't argue logic with an illogical person, can you? And so, man, it's, it's ridiculous. But you know, I say all that because the reason alarm clocks are historically so obnoxious is because they are meant to awaken us out of a slumber. They're meant to shock our systems. If you were here at like 8.30 this morning, you heard our sound guy testing that alarm and it was twice as loud as it is right now. And even I was shocked by hearing it. Like when that alarm goes off, it's, it's meant to wake you up so that you don't stay in bed, so that you don't sleep the day away. And so today, as we think about those shocking alarms in our lives, those wake-up calls in our days, we think about the church in Sardis, who needed a wake-up call um, in its history. And we're going to look at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and they received a letter from Jesus. And Jesus refers to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, I want, to, I want to say this little disclaimer before we get into our text this morning, because this might be a little bit confusing if you don't understand what Jesus is referring to, like the seven spirits of God. That might be a little bit misleading on the surface, but what I want you to understand is that there is one God, there is one triune God, there is one spirit within that trinity. It's the Holy Spirit of God. There are not seven different Holy Spirits. There's just one, but there is the spirits of our God and the seven stars. And so I want you to understand that these seven spirits is basically Jesus referring back to the prophet Isaiah. 
where he talked about the fullness of the Spirit of God. And so in Isaiah chapter 11, you don't have to turn there, but verse 2, there are seven indicators of the Spirit of God that this prophet writes about. And I believe that Jesus is referring back to these seven indicators or describers. And verse 2 says, And the Spirit of the Lord is one, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the fullness of God. And Jesus is saying to the people in Sardis, the Christians in this church, he's saying, I am the fullness of the spirit of God. And I am the one who not only is the fullness of the spirit of God, but I hold the seven stars in my hand. Now that might be a little bit confusing as well, but when you understand culture and you understand the context to which Jesus was writing to these people, it actually made very much sense to them in the city of Sardis. Because gold coins have been excavated from this ancient city in Sardis, and they've been discovered in in, um, more modern days. And these gold coins that were excavated through archaeologists and everything, they found these coins that had the emperor Domitian um, put upon them on the front side. And on the back side of these coins, Domitian had seven stars on that coin, like he was holding seven stars in his hand. And so Jesus is making a clear reference to something that was very, um, I guess, familiar to them in their context. He's saying to them, if you think the emperor is the son of God, if you think the emperor is the all-wise, if you think the emperor is the all-powerful or all-knowing, you've got it all wrong. He's saying, I'm the one who has the fullness of the spirit of God. I'm the one who holds the seven stars. Look to me. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the Son of God. And so Jesus is addressing kind of this church in a very cultural way, in a very relevant way. And this letter is sounding an alarm to this church that's asleep at the wheel. And it's coming from the one, if you know anything about the Psalms, you've maybe heard a reference to Psalm 121 verse 4. And it's a reference to God who says he will neither slumber nor he will he sleep. He neither slumbers and he, he doesn't sleep. And so Jesus is saying, I am he. I am that God. I do not slumber. I do not sleep, even though you are falling asleep as a church. And so this letter was an alarm clock to the church to wake up. And so I want to read what Jesus has to say to these Christians. We're going to read the first six verses of this letter to start out, and then we'll break it down over the next 20 minutes or so. It starts, it starts in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3. It says this, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write this, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete and the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
And so Jesus has a strong word of caution, a strong word of alarm to this church that serves as a wake-up call for them that are on the verge of life support. This church is on the verge of dying off. And this is what he is teaching them. This is what he is saying to us today. So if you have your notes and your program that you received on the way in, this is a moment for you to be able to take some notes and fill in some blanks. The first thing that he teaches us through addressing the church in Sardis is this. Number one, reputation doesn't always resemble reality. Reputation doesn't always resemble reality. If you look at the second part of verse 1 again, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You are dead inside, even though your reputation says something else. We've all been fooled by reputations, haven't we? We've all been deceived. We've all been duped. 14 years ago, my two oldest daughters, when they were much younger, um, we decided to take them to Disney World for the first time. Because that's what good parents do, right? Like you're supposed to take your kids to Disney World and get them all that experience so that they can say that they got pictures with Mickey and Minnie and all of the princesses and all of the different characters and, and, and spend all of your money and all that kind of stuff. That's what a good parent does. So we did what good parents do. Our girls got all dressed up in their princess outfits. Somebody in our church spent probably a couple hundred dollars getting them. Uh, I think one of them was... Um, maybe Cinderella, and the other one was Belle. So they had the dresses on, their hair was all done up, they had a little bit of makeup on, they were wearing these cheap plastic uh, costume shoes as well, and they were ready to go to Disney World and get this amazing experience. Well, the problem was, it was the middle of December, and it was hot, and it was humid, and we were just... um, The middle of December in Disney World is not necessarily a really fun time when you've got two young kids. And so by noon, they were shutting down. Like they were just beside themselves. And it was kind of like wearing down on our day. They wanted to change out of their dresses. And I just don't get it. If I'm being honest, I think about Disney World and I just don't get it. Like you go there and it's hot and it's crowded and the lines are long and it's overpriced. And their rides are far inferior to the rides at like Cedar Point. And I just don't understand what all of the hype is. And the reality of our experience did not match their reputation. We, got, we felt like we got duped a little bit. And um, man, it was not necessarily the greatest experience. And so reputation doesn't always reflect reality. And we've all been caught up in this hysteria and all the hype. You know, I think about this every time I go to Chick-fil-A as well. You guys ever go to Chick-fil-A and you wonder to yourself, why do I wait in this drive through line that has 75 cars in front of me just for a little bit of Christian chicken? Like that's all it is. It's Christian chicken and it's probably overpriced. And yeah, they got waffle fries and my life, my wife loves their ice. It's just the greatest thing ever. But every time I go to Chick-fil-A, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't understand all of the hype, but we all get caught up in reputation and it affects us. And here's this church in Sardis. They have a reputation. They were a church that was riding high on a good name and a good reputation. They were constantly busy. They were doing all these things that on the outside looked really good. But Jesus is saying, I see all this activity and I know how the city thinks of you. I know what you were in the past and the reputation that you have, but that's not enough. Historically, this church was known for vitality and a gospel enthusiasm, but a a good reputation will only carry you so far. 
And Jesus is not nearly as concerned with what we've done in our past as much as he is with what we're becoming in our future. Jesus is not concerned about a past reputation as much as who we are becoming. Yesterday's victories are of little value for today's battles. And everything in Sardis that they had going on was a callback. It was all a callback to previous years, previous days, and previous believers that maybe carried this church along and were faithful to Jesus Christ. And today, in this, in this moment when Jesus is addressing them, he's addressing a group of Christians. He's addressing them as a group of Christians that had grown complacent and they weren't getting it done. They were just busy, but they were dead on the inside. And their comfort led to some costly consequences. I think it's easy for churches to get caught up in the spirit of Sardis. We start out sprinting in our journey with Christ. Because we can't sustain that momentum, we can't sustain that pace, because our, maybe our training isn't sufficient enough to sustain that trajectory, we slow down and we grow weary and well-doing. And many of us, because our discipleship roots don't go deep enough, we settle into a complacency. And then our Christian life begins to become characterized by how we once ran years ago and what we once did and what we once accomplished and what we once built and how great our Christian walk was so many years ago. And maybe it even becomes about, well, this is my reputation based on what I used to do and what I used to accomplish. And this all looks really impressive on the outside. But we're not producing present day fruit. This church in Sardis wasn't producing the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. They were instead dying. And Sardis had become a morgue with a steeple. That's what Chuck Swindoll once said about this in a sermon that he had preached. He said Sardis was a morgue with a steeple. It was a church that was once alive, but it faded into a spiritual slumber, and then it slipped into a spiritual coma. And now it's on the verge of spiritual death because it just got comfortable. And I have to ask myself, as I think about the truth of God's word and how relevant it is to us today, I have to ask myself, where is Crossroads as a church in comparison to what we read about Sardis? What is this classic service as a congregation compared to what we just read about Sardis? Where are you as an individual in comparison to what we're going to learn about Sardis? You know, every year, 3,500 churches close their doors because they can no longer make it. Every year, 3,500 churches die off. And statistics tell us that beyond that, 65% of the churches in America have either plateaued or are currently in a decline, racing toward spiritual death. In 2014, Tom Rainer, in, in response to that, that statistic, he wrote a book called the autopsy of a deceased church. And in it, he identified seven different factors or variables that are indicators of a church that is dying. And I thought, man, I would like to share that with you this morning because I thought that they were really relevant. I thought they were really insightful. And so there's seven things in your notes. You can write these down and fill in the blanks. There are seven indicators of sickness in a church that might lead to spiritual death. Number one, treating the past as a hero. There are some churches that can't get past their past. All they do is they look to to the past and they romanticize yesterday and they lament the present and they refuse to believe that God continues to work and do even greater things today and tomorrow than he did yesterday. 
They treat the past as a hero. Number two, refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Some churches lose a passion for contextualizing the gospel in this generation, and they refuse to change in order to reach the next generation. Number three, focusing the budget inward instead of outward. Focusing the money and the money that's spent inward more than outward. It becomes more about protecting the fort and protecting what we've built and what we've saved up than it is about how are we going to invest back into reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, letting the church become preference-driven out of selfish or personal agendas. And man, there are a lot of churches that fall into this this little um, indicator of sickness. Churches that become, well, this is what I prefer, and this is what I want, and I don't care what everybody else does. This is what I'm comfortable with. It's hard to hold loosely our preferences. I get it. We all have them. And there's nothing wrong with having preferences. But when we refuse to change because we like the way it's always been, I don't know that we are actually a healthy church because there are changes that each and every one of us have to make as long as we don't change the truth of God's word and the message of Jesus Christ. And I got to commend this service. You guys have been through a lot of change. You've held a lot of preferences loosely. You know, there's been changes out in the lobby uh, in the last year. There's been changes to your program just in the last couple of months there's been video announcements that have put, been put up on the screen. We now have the, like the, the, uh, the hymn numbers up on the screen. And we've started to show bumper videos. And we've started to show some sermons of Pastor Dave preaching. And I get that this is not the ideal for some of you. But I have to commend you for the fact that you adapt. And you say, hey, this is what is needed to take this church, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ forward. But sometimes, man, preferences become... a a, a real um, barrier to churches um, driving toward health. Number five is failing to have regular corporate prayer. Now, this is something I got to say, this church, this congregation in particular does really well. This is a praying people. You guys place high value on prayer and the fact that it, it changes things. Prayer affects the heart of God and it changes our hearts as well. And so, That's an indicator of a healthy congregation when we're regularly corporately praying. And then uh, number six is frequent turnover and pastoral leadership. There are some churches that have a ton of turnover with their pastors because they chew them up and they spit them out and they make it difficult over kind of small and insignificant and sometimes ridiculous issues. And pastors just lose heart. They lose hope. They lose a sense of their calling because they're just tired of fighting the people that they're leading. And so a a frequent turnover of pastoral leadership, and then lastly, no clear purpose or vision. And I believe here at Crossroads, we have a clear purpose. We have a clear mission statement. We have a statement that says we want to lead people to gospel transformation in North Central Ohio and around the world. That is our why. That's why we do what we do. And when we remember our why, it changes our what. And we have a clear vision and a clear purpose. Churches that don't have these things, all those things that we just listed, those are churches that may be on the brink of closing their doors. So for us to be a church here at Crossroads that not only survives, but is commended by Christ, we have to move past our past. We have to let go of our failures and we have to hold even our successes loosely so that Christ can continue to propel us forward. Otherwise, we'll become a dead church like Sardis. We'll become whitewashed tombs. 
We might look good on the outside, but on the inside, we might be dying as a people, as a congregation. So I want you to understand that the reason that Jesus talks about some of this stuff is because just outside the city walls of Sardis, there was a famous necropolis. It was a graveyard. And all around the hills that surrounded the city of Sardis, there were mountains and and hilltops all along the horizon. And on all of these hills and these mountaintops were different graveyards and they were burial locations for the, the wealthy and the elite of society. And this city was given the nickname the cemetery on a thousand hills. The city was full of death and the church was beginning to reflect what the city was really described as, what it was known for. It was a place where the dead were delivered to be buried. And Jesus is saying, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So you need to fight against this. This church needed to fight against it. Let's look on in verse two and three. It says this, Revelation chapter 3, verse 2 says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. The next thing that we learn from this passage of Scripture, what Jesus wants us to know is resuscitate what is dead by retention and repentance. Resuscitate what is dead by retention and repentance. Jesus is saying, wake up. You need to be resuscitated. You got to hold on to what you have been taught and you need to repent of your sins. This church was on life support. Jesus was imploring them to wake up and he hadn't given up on them. I think this is a great testimony to the faithfulness of our God that we serve. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you raised up a prodigal child? You know what it's like to weep over them. You know what it's like to love fiercely and to be fiercely devoted. You know what it's like to hurt for someone who doesn't hurt for themselves, to want something that doesn't want good things for themselves, to fight for them, even when they're fighting against you. You know what that feels like. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's fighting for them, even when this church was complacent and comfortable to walk away from the truth of the gospel. Sardis was a city who had suffered from a lot of arrogance and a lot of complacency. You know, it was once 100,000 people that lived in the city of Sardis, and they were extremely wealthy. It said, history tells us that some of the very first silver and gold coins were actually minted in the city because years before, there was a kind of a gold rush in the city of Sardis. So people were moving from all over the known world at the time. They were coming there to strike it rich, like many people went to California 150, 160 years ago. They were going to Sardis because they wanted to be rich, and they wanted, they wanted wealth, and they wanted a, a better way of life. And so they were drawn to this place, and they were drawn and lulled into a lifestyle of comfortability. Sardis... The people that lived there, they were comfortable for another reason as well. They lived up on an Acropolis. You see, an Acropolis is like the top of a hill, the top of a mountain. And it's said that the the, the cliffs, the mountainsides on either side, every side of the city were sometimes as tall as 1,500 feet. And they were straight up and down. You can Google it. You can look up pictures of the city. And there are some really sheer cliffs that surround this Acropolis that these people lived on. And so they thought that they were safe. They had the walls, they had the wealth, they had the cliffs. It was thought that this city was impenetrable, 
they were completely um, safe within the city walls of Sardis. But the citizens were lulled into a sleepy kind of complacency over the years. History tells us that twice Sardis was conquered. They were caught off guard and they were conquered by the enemies who had figured out how to scale these 1,500-foot cliffs. They came in and the military wasn't ready for them because they thought they were safe and they were conquered two different times because they were asleep. Let's look back at verse 3 again, the first part of it. It says, remember then, Jesus says, what you received and what you heard, keep it, retain it, hold on to it, and then repent. Because we are a forgetful people, folks. We, we suffer, many of us, from spiritual amnesia. It's the very reason that God told his children, the children of Israel, he said, when you go off, when you leave Egypt, I want you to set up memorials. I want you to set up these piles of stones, these altars, as a reminder of what I have done for you, how I have fought for you, and what I accomplished on behalf of you, so that every time you see these memorials, every time you see these stones in a pile, you will remember the faithfulness of your God, because otherwise you might be tempted to think that you did it instead of me. God wants us to remember what he's capable of, because when we forget what he's done in our, done in our past, we're more likely to forget what he's capable of doing in our future. You know, my family has a tradition of uh, memorializing our prayers of thankfulness. Every year at Thanksgiving, we remember what God has done for us over that year by setting out a white tablecloth. We set it out under all of our cups and all of our plates and all of our silverware, and we put Sharpie markers on the table And every year, every member of our family, and even our guests that might come for that Thanksgiving, we write down a note of thankfulness. And we tell God what we're thankful for that year. And every year, the the notes grow in number, and every year our gratitude grows in number, and we remember what Christ has done for us. And we remember that he has been holding on to us. And so we hold on to him. In fact, I got, I want to show this to you if I can. I don't know if I'm going to be able to spread the whole thing out, but this is, this is 10 years of thankful testimony of memorializing what Christ has done. We sit this on our table every year and we continue every year to add to it. And as we read through these things, adding our own um, recent prayers of thankfulness that year, we're reminded of everything that God has done in our past, and it grows our faithfulness, and it grows our thankfulness, and we retain what God has done in and through us. And so that's a great way for us to remember. And folks, we don't retain well sometimes, and so we have to take measures in order to retain well. And these people were growing in complacency, and they were not holding on to Christ. They were not holding on to faithful doctrine and faithful Bible teaching. So I would tell you this morning to remember what you received from Christ. Remember what he did for you on the cross. Remember his word. Remember the righteousness that has been transferred to you when he saved you. Remember his faithfulness to you during times of suffering and struggle. And when we remember his faithfulness, it awakens a spirit within us. It shakes us out of a spiritual slumber. That's why communion and baptism is so important that we do these things and practice these things on a regular basis. In fact, next week we are going to celebrate communion. The following week we're going to have a baptism service. So we're looking forward to those things because it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus died and was buried and rose again for our sins. And that 
because of that, that we can have the hope of heaven. And as we look on into this passage of Scripture, Jesus starts talking again, yet again, about repentance. He talked about retention. He talked about holding on and holding fast to that which you've received. But now he starts talking about repentance. And it comes up week after week because this is what Jesus brings up to the churches. He wants them to be a people defined by repentance. And repentance is declared war on sin. It's a resuscitation of our spirit to say, hey, I got caught up into this sin and I know that I have rebelled against God. I know that I have gone my own way, but now I realize that I fell asleep at the wheel. Now I know that I have sinned against my God and I have changed my mind and I'm changing my direction. When we repent, we are declaring war on our sin. And this is God's desire for his people, for his children, that we be a people that when we sin, we repent quickly. But if you won't, look at the second half of verse 3. It says this, If you will not wake up, if you will not repent, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Jesus is saying some really hard things here. He's saying if you won't repent, number three, you better ready yourself for Christ's discipline. Ready yourself for Christ's discipline. You know, it makes me sad that we live in a day and age in our churches, not just here at Crossroads, but the church in general. We are an unrepentant people, a non-repentant people. We, many of us, have grown comfortable with our sin. We have grown familiar with our sin to the point where we justify it. And not only do we justify it, but many, in many cases, what is, uh, I guess, what is infecting the church in 2023 is that we justify, we accept, and then we celebrate our sins. Our pride refuses to allow us to repent of our sins, but Jesus is saying, you must repent. Christian, what is it in your life that you are struggling with? What is it in your life that you have become familiar with? Maybe you've even become allies with and you once fought against it because you knew it was rebellious. You knew it was sinful. You knew it dishonored the name of the Lord our God, but you got so weary in fighting it that you just decided to make an alliance with that sin. You drew up terms of surrender and then you became friends. And that sin became familiar. And because of your pride, not only is it familiar, maybe it's even become a point of celebration. Jesus says, repent. And if not, I will discipline you. Like every good father does, he disciplines his children who rebel. And Jesus is warning them out of love, out of mercy. He's saying, if you don't do this, I will come to you at a time that you don't expect it. And he's reminding the citizens of Sardis, like you remember when your city was overcome. You remember when it was conquered, right? Like nobody saw it coming. These thieves came in and they stole the wealth and they stole your way of life and they stole your security. They stole all these things that you held dear because you weren't paying attention. And you know what it's like to lose all of this. And if you won't repent, I will come to you like that thief and I will correct you and I will discipline you and I will set you straight. We need to be a people that are repentant today. And you have never grown beyond the need to repent when you sin. Every one of us. And if we will return to him, if we will put our trust in him and remain in him, he will be our strong tower. He is impenetrable. He will be our fortress that no enemy can destroy. 
For the Christian who refuses to compromise, I love what he says there at the end because he offers a reward. He offers an alternative. He says, there are some among you that have, re- have not yet soiled their garments. He says, man, I will give you a robe of white. I will give you garments of white, which is a robe of righteousness. I will confess you before my father and before the angels. And your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. All we have to do is to hold fast to Christ and to repent. Folks, let's be this kind of a church. Let's profess Christ. Let's hold fast to our our confession of the Lord. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to crossroads. Let's be that kind of a church that is no longer dead, that is no longer asleep at the wheel, but is alive in Jesus. Let's refuse to become a corpse church. Heavenly Father,